This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. So how are you guys doing today? Excellent. How are you doing? Going to be upgrading my internet in, it's like two days. Going to go to 100 by 100 megabits. So I'm happy. Oh, nice. Uh, I, I spent all night last night uh, fixing an issue with devchat.tv. So I'm running on like three hours of sleep. That's good. Yeah. So if I, if I seem half awake, it's because I'm half awake. So. All right. Well, uh, should we get to this first question? Sure. It says, how do you deal with unexpected requests for your time? Each Friday, plan the following week, and where required, give delivery estimates to clients. It currently feels like I never stick to the schedule due to unexpected requests or unexpected issues with the code or services I'm working with. Yeah, I mean, I know that feeling. I wonder if it would help to do something to minimize interruptions. So, for example, I use something called Inbox Pause to only get notified of new email every two hours. It all comes in in a big batch. Uh, it allows me to focus a lot better. But, yeah, I mean, plans are good. Planning is good, but you have to be open to it shifting around, especially if people have emergencies, right? Uh, I would just try and delay stuff so that you're not getting constant notifications and set the expectation with your clients that you only check email once every two hours and you'll get back to them, and that's sort of a routine. It makes a huge difference for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I also try and communicate to them. So um, if I'm working on a weekly basis or, you know, reporting in on a weekly basis, then, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of telling people, this is what I expect to get done, this is what I want to accomplish. But then if they come to me with something or something else comes up, then I have no problem telling them, this is what I said I was going to get done this week, but if this other thing's more important, just keep in mind that it's going to push this off to next week. And so you set the expectations as much as possible so that it's not a surprise when you don't deliver on the other things. I think it's a little bit different, too, when you're working on a project bid basis where, you know, you've bid just a fixed price for a certain amount of work and whether those interruptions fall under the scope of the work that you agree to or not. But if you're doing, like, weekly billing or hourly billing, then, you know, you just let them know that, yeah, they're just going to have to pay for that time and it pushes the timeline back. Right. I think there's like two things here. This almost feels like he's asking about like client requests because it doesn't stick to the schedule due to unexpected requests or issues with the code or services I'm working with. It kind of raises another point is it might not be external stuff or it might not be like new things from the client, but it might be like they ran into a problem or a bug or like integrating something's taking longer. Whenever that happens with me, I basically, I have a buffer in estimates. So like, you know, if it feels like it's taking longer, but it's not gonna be much longer, usually my estimate will kind of account for it. But if it's going to be a lot longer or if it's like something massive, I'll basically take it to the client and tell them like, look, I do mine on Monday. So I was like, on Monday, we talked about doing this feature. We said it'd take three days after getting into it and spending a day with it. It's actually larger than three days. It's going to take five days to do. So we can either increase the estimate to five days. I can keep working on it or we can bump it out and work on something else. But basically let your client know like, you know, here's the changes. Let them make the decision of like, is this the value? Is it now worth five days of work or could we cut it, can we move it around, whatever. Let's just try to be open and try to communicate with them 
whenever I'm doing weekly stuff, like I think I'm talking to my client at least three times a week. Some clients I talk to multiple times a day, like in Slack or something like that. And so you're having kind of the communication open before you run into a problem is always great. That way it doesn't look like you're always bringing them problems. Yeah, I actually had a client a year or so ago and we were actually working with payment processors in a bank and uh, the payment processors process was make a file, put it in FTP, and then that was basically the way that you worked with them. And the bank was the same way, but neither of them were uh, super familiar with programmers and working with people who are writing code to automate that stuff. And so they didn't know how to tell us what to do, and they didn't have it well documented what processes and what file formats we needed when we were FTPing things up. And they only worked in certain ways with certain credentials and things like that. And so just communicating that. And I did. I communicated it upstream to my client, and he failed to communicate it to his client, and they got really frustrated. And so I, I think really the solution to a lot of this is just being direct and upfront with a lot of this stuff so that they understand what the constraints are as opposed to them you know, worrying about whether or not it's going to get done on time and you know, feeling frustrated that every time they make a request, stuff doesn't get done. Yeah, I don't know if this is exactly what the person is asking, but in terms of interruptions, I would add that it helps me to put everything in my calendar. So, you know, stuff like, oh, on on Fridays, I I don't know, I balance my checkbook or I do invoicing or I have to pay my bills, like stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think about putting in your calendar, but you actually have to do every week. If you fill in spots for that stuff, it gives you a little bit of a buffer where maybe you can push that stuff off to the weekend or something like that, but if you pretend like you don't have to do that stuff, it gives you the mistaken impression that you have more time than you actually do, and so you always feel like you don't have enough time to finish everything for the week. So maybe it's podcasting or doing a blog post or sending out a marketing email or, like I said, reconciling your bank account or something. If you build all that stuff into your calendar, it gives you a little bit of a buffer and helps you feel like you're a little bit ahead of the eight ball instead of behind it. Yeah, and I've actually found when I'm you know, doing a week for a client. Monday and Tuesday are basically it's packed. I have all the time for the client and then any kind of extra time I have is already taken up by, you know, reoccurring stuff. And so it ends up like I have time on Wednesday and Friday. And so I now know like in my head, like I can commit to an hour or two hours on Wednesday and Friday during those weeks. And so like it comes back to what's the most important thing? Like do I need to focus on some sales for after this project? Do I need to take some time to myself to relax? Do I need to work on some writing? You know, but having all that stuff and knowing like these reoccurring things will take up all my time on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, uh, it helps and it takes a lot of stress off of me. It's basically like less decisions of what I work on next. Yep. I, I kind of ran into this with myself. I mean, just, you know, I, I mentioned uh, the devchat.tv issues, you know, kind of came up as an emergency and I was planning on spending yesterday recording videos for Rails clips and I kind of need to get that done. So now I'm looking at my calendar and trying to figure out where I'm going to put things in because I'm actually going to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, get all this stuff done before leave on Thursday. So again, it's tough sometimes just figuring out. Okay, I've got I've got visual constraints, and you know I've got to figure out how to how to handle those. But I really like the approach that you mentioned, Jonathan, and just putting everything in your calendar, and then you can decide what can slide and slide it to. Yeah, it helps me not saying yes to too many things because I see that I actually don't have any time left over. Right, and you see your calendar fill up. Should we go on to the next question? Yeah, that sounds good. All right, so Eric posted a couple of ideas here. One was how to find your first few clients. 
I feel like that depends a lot on where you're coming from. So if you are, say, already inside of a firm that does the kind of business that you're going to go solo and do, for example, then um, I would work with whoever your boss is at the firm and see if you can work out an arrangement where you take some of your clients with you and split the money or something like that. So it's totally cool and agreed to by everybody and everybody's happy. Uh, but if you're at, you know, if you're making a big switch from, you know, you're starting cold, you know, whatever, who knows, but you work at Starbucks or whatever and you're going to start doing web design. I think a great place to start to make a name for yourself is to, you can certainly do open source projects like Eric's done in the past. If you fairly expert at some piece of this new job that you're going to embark on. You can do what's called e-bombing. I don't know if that's a known term or, or what, but you can basically go around to places where people are asking questions about your area of expertise and just help them with the questions, you know, essentially offering free advice to folks who are having problems and try to spin that into, you know, a more hands-on gig. So you help them, you help them, you help them, and when it gets to the point where it's ridiculous, then you say, well, you know, if you want to set up a proper arrangement, here's my website, and, and we could set something up, and I could get to work on it. That's actually, I'm surprised how helpful that's, I've seen that be for people, in, in myself included. Yeah, I have a few other recommendations. I mean, one is just talk to people. When I went freelance, I got laid off, and I, I'm sure I've told the story before. Basically, what happened was I wound up going to lunch with a bunch of other programmers who I had worked with. One of them got laid off the same time I did from the same company I did. So we all went to lunch. We were just chatting about things, and everybody was talking about a local company that was looking to hire. And it turned out that they were looking to hire a uh, contractor as opposed to a full-time employee. I didn't know that at the time, but asked me for my rate. You know, I gave them a, actually what turned out to be an extra low rate. But, I mean, that's how I got my first client. The other thing that uh, I'll recommend is uh, I had been doing Teach Me to Code, uh, teachmetocode.com, for quite a while. Uh, it was just videos on how to do things in Rails, kind of similar to what I'm doing now with Rails Clips. And what that wound up doing for me was I had several people who had followed my work there. So when I went freelance and I announced that I was looking for work, they put me in touch with people who eventually helped me find work. So, you know, just work your network. Talk to people at the users groups. Find opportunities to explain to people where you're at. Um, now, I had the benefit of having been experienced and having a lot of my work public. But, uh, you know, if you're not in that place, then, you know, you might have to do a little bit more work to show people what you're capable of. But still, I mean, go talk to people. Give them a really good idea of what you're looking for as far as clients go and what you can do to solve their problems. And just see what you can come up with. But if you talk to enough people, somebody's going to know somebody who needs your help. That's great advice, and it's really helpful uh, when you're reaching out through your network to be really specific about mm -hmm. who you want to help. And it's probably starting out, everyone's going to want to be a generalist, but it actually works against you, really. It's much easier for people to recommend you to folks if you're like, I'm going to do web development for accountants or dentists or animal shelters. Then they'll be like, oh, I know somebody who runs an animal shelter. I should put you in touch. It makes it really easy instead of saying, like, I'm going to start doing web development. Do you know anybody who needs a website? It's kind of like, I don't know, maybe, I guess. Yeah, like everybody needs a website. Right. Uh, the other thing is is that if you do specialize like accountants or dentists or whatever, you can also then talk about, you know, I have built an appointment scheduler or a portal for patients to enter their data. Or you can talk about specific problems that you solve and that way, when they go and talk to their dentist friend or they go to the dentist and the dentist, you know, they hear something about it, then they can go, 
oh, I know a guy that not just specifically works with dentists but solves that particular problem. And they're much more likely to make that connection if they know uh, what, you, what you can do and then are having the conversation about what you can do with your potential client. Which means don't just think about your business network. You can go through mm-hmm. friends and family, your Facebook network. It doesn't matter that they're probably not going to hire you. Like, don't self-select like that. Just, just tell everybody you possibly can get in touch with that you're going to start doing web development for accountants or whatever. And everybody there, everybody you know, in your friend list probably has an accountant or a dentist or whatever. And if you do specialize in that way to start out, instantaneously you're going to get a whole bunch of references. Yep. It's also really easy then to build examples that you can open source or share, you know, so then they can say, oh, yeah, well, he built this other thing, and they can actually, you know, show it off or put them in touch so you can show it off. But, again, it's that visual stimulus that, again, makes that connection in their head with what you do and who you can serve. Another thing to kind of add to that is, you know, you can do inbound stuff where you're basically, like, going on podcasts, writing, doing all that stuff, and that's that's what's popular, but you really got to do a lot of outreach or outbound. Like, you got to go calling people. So if you do focus on dentists or accountants or whatever, like, call them, pick up the phone, call them, send them emails. You're going to get rejected a lot, but I think especially if you're new to business, you got to kind of get used to that a little bit. Like, you're going to get rejected. My first project actually came through, my mom knew someone, and I did some work for them, but every other project after that came up from, like, finding someone who was talking on a forum about some problems they had and contacting them or doing a lot of Craigslist job stuff. Like, so there's a lot of jobs posted on Craigslist. I'd contact them and, you know, it wasn't the best work. It wasn't like ideal clients, but it got me basically started. And, you know, I was a generalist at first and I was, I had several years of Rails experience at the time, but I was even replying to like job boards and stuff like that. They're asking for like PHP stuff. So I was very, very flexible, very, very open just to get, you know, enough income in, get stuff bootstrapped. And I think if other stuff isn't working, you need to have that in your back pocket. You know, it might not be very easy, you know, the exact business you want at the very beginning, but in order to get it going, you're going to have to kind of make some sacrifices and kind of get it started. And then as soon as you can kind of get to like repositioning to like what you really want to focus on, do that. That's true. When I got started, I spent a lot of time on job boards, reaching out to people, calling, emailing, all that stuff. Our friend uh, Kurt Elster, who's been on the show, when he started his uh, web design firm, web development firm. He wrote a bunch of handwritten letters and went around and slid them under the door of dozens and dozens of businesses in the Chicago area where he's located. And he said it was really successful for him. You know, you imagine getting a, a handwritten envelope under your door, you're going to open it. So speaking of outreach, that made me think of that. Mm-hmm. It's pretty effective. Yeah, and I think uh, Brennan Dunn, he talks about it on his blog sometimes, but when he was doing the Rails consultancy stuff, he gave basically like a, a little conference that like he'd invite people in from the local business. He would talk about something about, you know, dev or whatever for, I think, a few hours and then would have kind of like a, a meet and greet social thing afterward. And he said, like, that got him a lot of business. And that also kind of gave him a name in the local community, which, you know, led to referrals, which was, I think, the big reason why he was doing it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to uh, podcast appearances and things like that because it's also a good way, but you have to give them some incentive to come check you out. If you go on a podcast or, you know, anything like that, uh, where you're reaching somebody else's audience, you want to give them like a coupon code or a free consultation or something of value, an ebook. Then they're incentivized to come and actually come to your website, get on your mailing list, you know, make contact and kind of open the gate for you to reach out to them. If you just go on the podcast and they kind of vaguely know who you are, you're not going to get nearly as many people coming to you. 
is if you say, yeah, so come to my website and get the free ebook on how to get more patients or clients or customers from your website or 10 things that you can do to improve the whatever on your website, you know, and then you can nail down those specific things, you know, the conversion rate or the, you know, whatever it is that, that they care about. Have more people book more appointments. But, you know, so then they're coming to you because they want what you're offering and then you can offer your services once they kind of get that freebie and recognize that you know what you're talking about. I think, though, like, I mean, podcasts are great, but it's really hard if you're just starting out to get on a podcast. Like, if you don't that's have true. skills or experience, or, I mean, if, even if you do and they're private, like, you can't talk about them, that's kind of a hard sell. So, actually, last week, um, I'm so, some people probably know I'm getting, I'm getting into basically building Shopify apps for people. And so, you know, I have dev experience. I have a lot of that stuff, but I don't have much visibility in that market. And so what I did last week is I basically booked myself as a client and booked a week to build a Shopify app. And so, you know, treated exactly how a client would, did the scoping, estimating, all that. And by, uh, what is it, Thursday mid-afternoon, I had an app built. And then, you know, basically did finishing touches the rest of the week. But what I can do now is I can kind of write that up as a case study of like, here's how you can build a Shopify app in a week. You know, here's the tools I use. Here's the trade-offs I made. Here's the APIs I use. Like, there's a whole bunch I can come out from that. Um, mm -hmm. But I can now go on a Shopify podcast and talk about like, here's my experience building apps. Like, apps aren't this big thing that you know people are worried about. They actually can be kind of small and micro-sized. And this one basically does like one thing. And so you can build that. I can talk about my experience because I have that, and that's something that other people won't have. And I can also, at the end, like you said, Chuck, so I can, you know, pitch an incentive to, like, you know, learn about common failures I had or other stuff like that. And so sometimes you might have to actually kind of invent some expertise, like mm -hmm. go out and do what you're going to be selling and show that you're an expert by doing it yourself. You know, like a lot of designers, not a lot, but some designers will actually do designs and mock-ups of fictitious companies, you know, do that sort of thing. And then if you can talk about it or talk about the design process or write about, you know, the different steps you've gone through, like that's a good way to kind of, bootstrap and get that expertise showing first, which you can then use to do case studies or get on podcasts or write about or whatever you want to do. Yep. One other thing I just want to throw out there is that once you get on podcast, it's a lot easier to get on other podcasts like it, especially if you can get a personal referral from the podcast host of the show you were on to another podcast host. And I'll tell you right now, if you wanted to be on one of the shows that you know, that I produce, it's a whole lot easier to get on if you're being referred by somebody who's already been on the show and had a great episode. And so, well, it's you know. It's just like with clients. I mean, if, yeah. if you do good work for a client, they're happy to refer you. You basically jump through a lot of the hoops automatically. It's personal trust. Yep. The last two guests that I'm, uh, Noah Gibbs was on the Ruby podcast and he referred both of them to him each for an hour. And, you know, I was very impressed by what they had to offer. So that's why they were on the show, you know, it just boils down to, you know, who do you know and who can you reach out to to uh, make that connection. And it's amazing how often it comes down to connections for finding clients. All right, so the next question says, start out as an answer or buy small apps when not finding any companies recruiting junior devs to started with a career in web development. So I'm not entirely sure what the question is, but I'm guessing that... They started out as a freelancer building smaller apps because they couldn't find a company that was hiring junior developers. And yeah, so it's it sounds like there's no one recruiting junior developers, so you can't find a job there. So this person basically kind of by default had to become a freelancer and is trying to mm -hmm. think of should they do freelancing probably for clients or should they build small apps? I'm assuming it's like an iOS or something right. like that where apps are kind of the currency. 
I'm guessing that, uh, you know, in that case, I mean, it's not a bad way to go. Another thing is, is if you're a junior and you're having trouble finding clients and you're just not sure that you're going to be able to get people because you can't, you don't have any social proof, you don't have any, any real portfolio to sell people on, and so you more or less are relegated to talking people into hiring you. I know several developers out there that have actually hired subcontractors who are junior devs. And it's, okay, you know, I want you to build the features that have a complexity up to such and such a level. And then, you know, the specialized or harder things are the things that they work out. And so, you know, you can also reach out to other developers and just, you know, offer them a deal on your hourly rate or whatever so that they can make a little extra on what you're doing and then work things out so that, yeah, they don't have to do all the mundane stuff and they get to do the interesting stuff. Uh, they make a little money on the side and you get to build your portfolio so you can say, hey, I helped with that. But yeah, the other thing is, and we've already talked about this, is just building small open source stuff and then you put that in your portfolio. And I think Eric's example was awesome right there for Shopify stuff. Yeah, I mean, because there's, if you kind of look at it from the client's perspective, there's a few things going on. Like, they're looking to hire someone, probably because they figured they don't have the resources, they don't have the expertise, they don't have the time, you know, whatever reason that they can't do it in-house. You know, but they're looking to hire someone, so there's different risks they're taking. Like, they've already admitted, we can't do it ourselves, we have to go outside for help, which is actually a pretty big emotional leap that they have to do. But most of the clients, they don't want to screw up. Like, they want a successful project, but they don't want to screw up. They don't want to overpay, they don't want to hire someone who's incompetent, they don't want to hire someone who, like, disappears halfway through. So, a lot of like the landing clients marketing and sales and all that stuff is kind of building trust with them, trying to get them, mm -hmm. you know, over the hurdle and say, yes, you know, we trust Eric, we trust John, whoever. One way is to be known as the expert. If you're the expert in the community, like, you know, you're a safe bet. It's just like, you know, I don't know how many years ago, you couldn't get fired for hiring IBM. Nowadays you probably could, but another way of doing that is like what Chuck was saying, like have apps out there, have stuff in your portfolio, have, if you have other customers you worked with that have um, logos or are kind of identifiable, like present those and show you the new client or the lead, like, hey, I've worked with these people. These people trusted me. Therefore, you can trust me. Um, it's a bit of like social proof, social conditioning, stuff like that. Um, and I mean, even if you can't get that sort of thing working, if you get can kind of build the trust of, I know how to build this thing you're working on because I've done it before, that's another thing you can do. Um, and that's actually, especially if you're a developer, is pretty easy to do. And I think another thing, I mean, if you're a junior developer, junior or whatever, working under people and contracting is perfectly fine. I've done subcontracting even as a senior Rails person. Like it's the client relationship is a bit different. You might not get the rates, you know, that you would get if you're like the primary. But if you can make it work, if it's an interesting project, like that's fine. I know some people that that's all they do. They just contract. They're like senior in their role, but they work under people because it's easier for them. They don't have to deal with the client stuff. They can work on a larger team with a larger client, but they don't actually have to hire employees and manage that. You know, and you could even specialize in that. Like that's, you know, it's a whole other industry. So don't worry about uh, subbing. I think that'd be fine. You know, especially it seems like, you know, if you're looking for uh, recruiting or if you want to get back into another job, subcontracting is a bit easier to cut off and go to a career if you find it. Um, and I've heard cases of contractors and subcontractors get hired by the client. So that might be a, a, that's like a sneaking through the back door way of like working with a good person actually getting hired by that company is to, to actually work with them as contractors first. Yep. That was how I got my first programming gig. Yeah. One other thing that uh, I ran across when I first went freelance was 
So the first gig I got, I went in and I undercut everybody because I didn't know I needed to ask for more money. The second gig I got was from a recruiter. And so you can go and hustle and talk to a lot of people. And, you know, like we were saying before, but sometimes the recruiters actually have freelance jobs. And if you can convince them that you can do the job, then they'll go and sell you to their client. Yeah, my wife's she does not a recruiter, but she does HR and does recruiting. Like, don't discount recruiters. Like, yep. they, especially if, if you can find actual tech recruiters, like, they have a huge network and they talk amongst themselves. So, you know, if you have skills, especially if they're in demand um, and you're, it helps if you're in a, like a metropolitan area, but that's another good way. And they can get you, like, you can tell them, like, I want to work remotely. I want to work for this industry. I, I want it to be a 1099, not a, not a W-2. You know, you can kind of tell them what you'd work for and they can try to make it work. I've almost gone that route at times when it got really slow, but then, you know, my sales stuff picked up. But yeah, I mean, it's it's another form of networking. And like I said, that um, one of those guys who does a lot of contracting, I know he gets a lot of his stuff through recruiters. Like they will kind of place him in a place in a company for like full time for like, you know, six months, nine months, and then he'll go somewhere else. Yep, I did that exact same thing. It was a long time ago now. I'm sure the industry is a lot different, but geez, I guess it would have been like 1998 or 99. I was doing freelance graphic design through Robert Half. I think it was. It was one of the agencies like that. And that was everybody who worked at the company I was at. It was like pretty much half of the people there were from these outside recruiters, and it was very common. If the full-time employees that were managing you liked you, and you did a good enough job, then you'd end up getting offered a full-time position. So for people who are junior, it's a great opportunity because really your skills are important, of course, but they're maybe even a little bit more interested in what you're like to work with, and you can sort of cover a lot of sins in terms of your skill set by just being really nice to work with, nice to be around. So assuming you can be that way, (laughs) it's definitely an approach if you're trying to get started. And then you basically get on-the-job training, or at least I did. Yeah, and so here's some kind of inside stuff that my wife tells me. Uh, in Portland, so the Portland area, it seems kind of basically doing temp to hire where you, you're hired as a temp and then, you know, getting off for a full-time job, like that's the normal. Like that's actually what a lot of people are doing. And almost everyone that she hires that way, they the company hires them with the intention of we're going to try them out and see if there's a good culture fit for the three months, six months their contract is. And they actually, every person, they have a discussion of, do we want to convert this person to full-time? Do we need to wait a couple more months because it's not quite there? Or do we want to let them go? I mean, it's just the same as if you got actually hired by a company, went through like a three-month probation, and they got fired. And like, that's kind of, she's saying like, it's in Portland, it's not in all the other places, but that's kind of where a lot of hiring's going now because it's lower risk on everyone. Um, The company's actually paying a lot because they have like, you know, the extra recruiter fees there, but just, it's called like, you know, talent networks and stuff like that. It's just, it's easier for recruiters to kind of tap into that and bring people into where they're best fit than it is for a company to go out and try to hire one person, Um, especially in high demand, like tech stuff. Like it's crazy what's going on there and how much people have to pay to get, you know, someone who's actually a good fit and actually even is at the junior level nowadays. Yeah. And the thing is, is that they kind of get to, I guess it's a trial run for both of you, but um, it's really expensive to hire somebody if it's a poor fit. And so they are interested. A lot of times you can also just find six-month contract to hire where it actually says contract to hire, and it's the same kind of thing where, you know, you work as a contractor for six months and then, you know, you can move on or take a job. Then then they know it's a good fit, and, you know, they're mitigating the risk that way. 
Yeah, and it's it's rarer, but you can also find jobs where it's just a straight contract. Like maybe they need help for a project, and there's a, a deadline or a, an indie date of the project, and you know upfront going into it, you're basically going to be a you know you're you're a contractor for them for six months. But it's you know if that's what you're looking for, if that's what you need or what you want, like it's out there. Um, I think the I think one big thing is a lot of people in especially dev and technical communities, they have this bias against recruiters and against kind of the job market or the employment you know, industry. And so they don't even go to look there. But the problem is like, there's a lot of stuff there and the people who actually can go and go through that, they actually get good results and a lot of good stuff. Cause there's, there's no one in tech trying to get into that. So the next question, is it wise to rely on one big client or many smaller ones? I like to have one big one and a bunch of small ones personally. So Jonathan's answer is yes, give me money. <laughs> I mean, it's nice to have the fewer clients you have, the less client management you have. You just have to deal with the one client. But obviously, the risk is you've got all your eggs in one basket. And it's happened to me a couple of times where I've had a whale client that um, either I fired or just disappeared overnight. And it's been going on for a long time, and you've really gotten comfortable with that money. It's kind of like getting fired from a W-2 job. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to diversify enough so that you maybe, you know, maybe your one big client is half of your income at the most and you've got other stuff that rolls up to that that's a little bit more diversified. Another thing that's maybe a little bit advanced for people that are just starting out, but I guess uh, I guess this isn't specifically just for people starting out, but to be reinventing your business and be creating new offerings on a regular basis so that you can go back to previous clients and say, hey, I've got this new service or I've got this new thing that I do or whatever and make sort of productized service sales to pre-existing clients or old clients because that's much easier than getting new clients and trying to get some kind of either recurring revenue set up from them to kind of smooth out your stability so you don't have as much feast or famine cycle and then if that whale client disappears for some reason, then you're not like at zero because if you get all of a sudden you have no clients out of the blue you're gonna do crazy stuff that will set you back you're gonna take on the first client that comes through the door whether they're good or bad and then you just end up paying for that for the life of the client you know you end up basically working with someone who drives you nuts or is a bad payer or is a bad communicator and so you you just don't want to have yourself in that position where you've got all your eggs in one basket yeah that's kind of that's close to what I do I you know try to make sure no one client's taken up more than half. Um, and if they do, like, make sure it's on a limited basis. So, like, you know, maybe I have one large client, but it's only a six-month engagement. And I know, like, I have, like, either past clients wait in the wings or I have basically whole sales and marketing stuff ready to go if, if they do disappear or something like that. I found, for me, two to three clients works good, uh, maybe four to five at the most. Um, but I cycle them, so I'm not working with them all at once. Like, if you look at, you know, throughout the entire year, the 12 months, they would be kind of here and there, here and there, on and off. I have one, two, you can kind of consider a third one, kind of their, their maintenance clients where I come in, uh, depending on which one it is, every quarter, every six months to do a week or two of work, and then I'm done. That's really nice because that kind of gives me, it's reoccurring and like I know it's going to happen. I know they're good clients are going to pay and all that. And then I can kind of slot in new clients or kind of more risky clients, I guess, around that. I've had it where I relied on one big client and they didn't disappear, but it got to where the project was extremely bad. It was just the, it shifted and became a really bad fit for me. And that was hard to let them go. Like I knew I should have, and I actually held on to it for a long time. And it was hard. Like it was kind of the, 
the you kind of dread being in business, you dread waking up type place, and you don't ever want to get to that place. And so if you can do it by having, you know, one client just for a short period, or if you can, you know, manage having a, a bunch of smaller ones, um, that's something to avoid. Yeah, I have to say that most of my clients have been, or most of my contracts have been just one large client for a while, and then I'll move on to another large client for a while, and I've had that bite me where you know they they go their own way or I you know I fire them or whatever, and I've also had it work out really nicely. And the thing that I like about having just one client is I can just focus on their thing and do a good job for them. And with smaller, with having a couple of smaller. Clients, clients and I have to do a whole lot more time management which is something I don't enjoy but yeah the flip side is is that when they go away if you don't have a you don't have somebody else who needs your help then yeah you've got to scramble to make that up so there are definite trade-offs I think between the two options and I kind of like the idea of having like one main client and maybe a smaller one that you're you know cranking on and on the yeah what I've had actually twice in the past I guess two quarters I've had one large client, and then, you know, I'm, I'm doing weekly billing, so, like, after that, I'd bring in, like, a little client here and there, um, and then I'd have another large client, and then, I, you know, in that project and have a couple smaller clients. And so it was a nice back and forth. Um, I'm good with the management of time and all that, and, you know, I have processes set up, so that helps, but it gives me enough variety so, like, I can, you know, stay busy with one client. It gets into a flow. It starts working good, and then I stop it for, like, you know, we finish up phase one and then schedule their next stuff out later on. Um, and so I kind of get a little bit of both. But one thing, basically any of this, like a good way to kind of lessen your risk is to have like a savings buffer. So if you have six months in savings set up and you have a big client and they walk away, you're not screwed. You don't have to jump at like what Jonathan was saying, like jump at like the first person who comes along that's breathing and has a checkbook. Like you can actually be, you know, as picky as you normally are, find a good fit, move on from there. Yeah, if you have a, I mean, my, my work is different a little bit, so my big clients are usually pretty long-term, like 12 months minimum. And there have been times in the past where I didn't take advantage of the fact that that's a very secure situation. I just sort of did my job and didn't think about marketing myself as much and just sort of rested on my laurels a little bit. And these days, I'm thinking of it, I'm, I'm not looking the gift horse in the mouth as much where I'm saying, like, look, I've got this great long-time client, I've just ramping up a new one now, so I'm going to have these two long-term retainer clients. I sort of fell into that a couple years ago. I, I was getting really lucky because I had a brand new book out. It was really popular. It was really easy for me to get these clients. I was saying no to a lot of people. And that tails off eventually if you don't keep up with it, which I didn't. So now I recognize that I'm in a really good situation, that, or I'm back to a really good situation, but now I appreciate it, and I'm using that security to build up the totally different kind of business model, different kinds of products on the side that hopefully will, you know, start to ramp up over time as, you know, and if this stuff ramps down, then so be it. I've got a new thing. But if it doesn't, then I could have both because the new thing I'm ramping up is a relatively low level of effort. You know, it's the kind of thing that's recurring and can kind of make money while I sleep, so to speak. So if you do have that one big client, then... Push yourself to come up with something that you could offer that would be very easy to deliver, but would be potentially lucrative and would be setting yourself yourself up as either an expert in your niche or maybe an expert in a new niche or something like that. But but take advantage of that security because it's not always going to be there. Yeah, that's basically exactly what I've been doing. Um, I've been, I think it's 16 weeks straight of client work, um, with the exception of last week was my first week off. 
And so you don't have that security. It's multiple clients, so I'm not afraid of one disappearing. Like if one disappeared, it, it will suck, but it's not like a huge deal. And you know, during that time, I've been working on repositioning, getting stuff ready to go. And so uh, this is my second week off just because it's a, a short week for me, and I'm actually going to take a lot of time to you know, get marketing stuff, get content stuff ready to go so like I can get that going, be repositioned, and I am going to be... I think all of next month, so all of August, I'm booked onto another large client. So basically, I have the security of these large clients right now. The hope is once that security kind of not goes away, but it goes down, and I'm at more risk, I have a lot of these other, not necessarily products, but I have these other things out there to make it so I can move into another direction. I can attract, you know, the next big client or the next, you know, phase of my business there. And I think you have to be really mindful of, like, what your current security level is, what risk you have right now, and, you know, prepare for that and adapt for that. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks, and then we'll wrap up the show. Eric, do you want to start us off with the picks? Yeah, so this isn't something you can just directly take, but it's an idea you can take. I'm not going to try to pronounce it correctly, but Zapier, it's like a, an API interconnection service or whatever. Basically, it takes you know this web app, talks to this one, and does certain things. I've used it recently. Um, I'm in a few Slack chats. And so Slack is like a real-time chat. It's basically like IRC on the web. But what I've done and what the pick is is in Slack, you have a thing called starring or favoriting stuff. And so what I've actually done is I set up Zapier. So like if I start something in Slack, it actually takes that and within 10 or 15 minutes sends me an email about it with the content, the links, all that. So what I can do now is I can be in Slack. If there's like a good point or a good link, I can just click that star and it automatically goes to email, which from there I can actually throw into a to-do list or whatever. It's a great way to, if you follow like getting things done, to kind of get all the stuff out of your Slack inbox and get it into somewhere else. I know another guy uses, um, sends his Slack stuff to Evernote. I think it's, I don't know the Evernote term. I think it's like a workbook, but all stuff for one group goes in one workbook, all stuff for another goes in another. So not only does he have all the links and stuff and the dates, but he also has like it's searchable in Evernote and all that. So it's like a, a neat little thing you can think about. I've, I do similar things with Twitter. You know, like if stuff start on Twitter, I get an email about it so I can actually go and look at it later. Um, and there used to be apps to do that where it'd send it to like Instapaper or whatever. But it's just a simple little setup, simple little tool. Currently it's free because I'm not doing it that, at that high of volume. Um, but it's a nice way to kind of consolidate a lot of the stuff that's going on. All right, Jonathan, do you have some picks for us? Yes, I've been looking forward to this show because I love the pick this week so much. I couldn't wait to share it with everybody. Hopefully you live near an Ikea, dear listener. But IKEA has these new wireless charging solutions that are just awesome. So I have this lamp now that's on my desk, and I can just put my phone on the base of the lamp, and my phone just charges. It's the greatest thing ever. No wires on my desk anymore. I just put down my phone. It goes beep. It starts charging. The thing is the best. They have uh, support for all different sorts of phones, and they have cases for, I think, iPhone 6, iPhone 6 Plus, iPhone 5. So if you've got any one of the iOS devices that are popular now or an Android phone that has support built in for wireless charging, I think all of the Galaxy S phones do it. My Nexus 5 does it uh, just built in without a special case. It's shocking how awesome it is to be able to just put your phone down and know that it's charging and then just pick it up and take off. Way cool. I've got a couple of picks here. Uh, the first one is, so this last weekend my sister got married, and I wound up doing a lot of video for her, and uh, there were a couple of things that I bought that really kind of made things easier. The first one is that it was a little clip, and it's about that big, 
if you're just listening to it, it's what a couple inches tall, and basically it's a clip that screws on to the screw on things like uh, camera tripod, and it'll hold your phone. And so I shot all the video on an iPhone 6 with that little clip on there, and it came out pretty nice. So I put that on the tripod, and then I also bought an action stabilizer, and uh, I'm going to hold up the little brochure that came in it so you can kind of see what it looks like. I, I don't know how to describe it, but basically it has a handle that uh, moves pretty freely in a little socket, you know, like a shoulder socket. It has counterweights on it, so when you move the camera back and forth, it stays smooth. When I'm shooting stuff with my iPhone 6 or iPhone 6 Plus, um, I have the 6 Plus. My wife has the iPhone 6. It tends to wobble a little bit, and so um, by having the, the motion stabilizer, it cleans a lot of that up. So I'll put links to those in the show notes, but uh, I was pretty happy with the way that the video came out on, on all of that. So those are my picks. So, uh, yeah, so if you watch this and you enjoyed it, I would like your feedback on Crowdcast if you watched it live. And if not, then, um, you know, I'm still curious to see how the video came out and, you know, how it affected things. So if you have any feedback, then uh, feel free to email me. My email is chuck at devchat.tv. You can also email freelancers at devchat.tv and it will reach all of us. So uh, just the feedback, that would be awesome. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 